Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, today we're going to be taking a brief look at the religion known as Islam, and it's going to be much of an overview more than anything. The reason for this is rather simple, and that's just because, like, you find a great deal of variety within the Christian tradition, and I'm using that term Christian rather broadly here, you find the same within the religion of Islam. You can have very liberal Muslims, just as you can have very conservative Muslims, and depending on what school of thought you follow, this is going to dictate much of where they land concerning different practices and beliefs, and they'll follow suit. So because of that, I'm not going to be touching on a great number of many things today simply because it doesn't quite fit what we're trying to do with this whole series. Now remember, the goal of what Matt and I have been trying to do over the past several weeks is just outlay what is the problem, the solution, the commands, and the blessings, and then take that and overlay it on various religious beliefs of our day so that you might then see these various teachings in light of the gospel. You might see how drastically they differ but more so that you would then take this and be able to approach somebody who believes in these systems or really any other system of belief and apply it. That you then share the gospel with that person whomever the Lord has indeed brought into your life. And so today what I aim to draw out are not the various distinctions within Islam, but simply what is common to every one of them. In other words, these are the very base commitments that any Muslim has to make. These are the things that they all share in common, regardless of where they may land on different things. Now, before I get into the various doctrinal beliefs of Islam itself, I want to just give you a brief history of how all of this came to be. Now, the historical record is not always in agreement, and that's just simply because much of it was not tracked during the time of Muhammad's life. However, the consensus is that right around 570 AD, Muhammad was born in a place called Mecca. By eight years old, both his mother and father had died, leaving him in the care of his uncle. And during his teen years, Muhammad is said to have traveled with different caravans to the region of Syria, where he had exposure to several polytheistic religions, but also he would have come into contact with Jews and Christians. This is where he would have learned much about the Judeo-Christian worldview, and this is ultimately how he would have learned about the scriptures. Well, up until about age 40, he actually lived a relatively normal life. But it's at this point that Islam teaches he had his first prophetic vision. Now this comes from, as they say, the angel Gabriel, who in Islam is nothing more than the Holy Spirit. And I want you to hear that just so you can see, again, how radically different it is just at the beginning. But this is the one who came and called him to be a messenger of Allah. Now over the course of the next 22 years, he is said to have received all of his visions and revelations through what is called direct dictation. And all that means is that every single word in the Quran purportedly is said to be the exact words of Allah and not Muhammad. That's incredibly important when you consider what this religion teaches. What Muhammad ultimately taught, though, is what we will see today. But it's born out of conditions in which he claimed that all of this was not a new religion at all, but simply returning to an old path, an old religion that had been corrupted over time. And so his message was what is one of pure monotheism. But it's not monotheism as you and I understand it. It is what is called Tawid, where Allah's oneness and his unity is the primary doctrine that's needing to be reclaimed or stressed. His argument was that the polytheistic religions of his own day went far beyond what was necessary, and they were impure, in fact, because they were idolatrous, right? Every one of you would agree with that statement. What's more than this, though, is he argued the monotheistic religions of Judaism and Christianity were also corrupt. Now, he traces his roots all the way back to Abraham, and he says that instead of Uh, Jacob receiving the blessing, or not Jacob, I'm sorry, Isaac, it is Ishmael. He says that Ishmael was a promised seed of Allah rather than Isaac, and that's where all the blessings go through. 
From this, he argues that Allah still sent prophets to Israel to teach them of this doctrine called Tawid, which we will get into, but Israel rejected the prophets. Of course, according to Islam, the most notable prophet that they rejected was Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ taught the same things as Muhammad. The Christians, he claims, in fact, did at least worship Allah truly to begin with as Christ had taught them, but they over time had corrupted and perverted this message by claiming that he and the Holy Spirit were God. However, in spite of all of this, Muhammad still affirmed that the Torah, the Psalms, and the Gospel all come from Allah. Now, you might be asking, how does he affirm these books of the Bible and his own teachings and the Gospel, seeing as it automatically is already teaching very different things? Well, this is right where we go back to the central claim of Islam. There is no other God than Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. Therefore, he says that the teachings of the Jews and the Christians that they've come up with, even the Bible itself, must in fact be corrupt. That is the base level commitment in Islam. In Islam, this is known as the law of abrogation, and all that means is that the Quran is ultimately the final revelation that was given to mankind, and it supersedes or replaces all other revelation. And what that means in a nutshell is that everything that you find in Scripture, if it's contradicted by the Quran, must mean that the Scriptures are wrong. In other words, the Scriptures, any other previous revelation, is abrogated or abolished by the Quran's teachings. What you are left with is that while some of the books of the Bible might be seen as the words of Allah, ultimately, only that which agrees with the Quran is from Allah, as they say. So Muhammad's teaching is the ultimate standard. In light of that, you have the Quran, you have or within that, which is the writings of Muhammad, even though he didn't read or write. You have the Hadith, which is the collected sayings and actions of Muhammad put together by his various early followers. And then you have what's known as a tafsir. And the tafsir is simply this official body of interpretation or teaching given by qualified imams. All of these are teachings and traditions that you can come to understand Allah by, and that is the only means by which you can come to understand him by. In other words, every last one of you in this room would be considered unqualified to simply read it for yourself and understand it. And in fact, the Quran just states of everyone that rejects Islam, who says in Surah 385, that whoever seeks a religion other than Islam, it will never be accepted of them. And in the hereafter, he will be one of the losers. Again, this is the fundamental teaching of Islam. This is what you must embrace to be Muslim. Judaism, Christianity are all corrupt because they do not teach the worship of Allah. They do not accept Muhammad as his messenger. And this is where we come full circle to that thing I mentioned in the beginning called the Taweed. Let's see if this works here. Okay. So this is the most important doctrine in Islam. There's no other God than Allah. And Muhammad is his messenger. That's the second half, not of the Taweed, but what we will see later. But this is the baseline commitment of what you must believe if you are a Muslim. But this statement has so much more in mind to it simply than there is one true God, as they would say. In reality, what it emphasizes is, again, the oneness, the uniqueness of Allah. It is a monotheistic religion, meaning it teaches the worship of one God, but everything behind it is that it is a Unitarian monotheistic religion, which just simply means that they reject the Trinity. God is not one God in three persons. He is one God and only one God. No persons, no Trinity. According to Surah 171, he says that it is blasphemy to ascribe anything or anyone to Allah. If you describe God in three persons, it is ultimately blasphemy because Allah is far above having a son, as it says directly. So get that. This is the most important doctrine of Islam to begin with. You must explicitly reject Christ being the Son of God. That's the starting point. In fact, the Quran even claims that though he was born of a virgin in Surah 347, that he is still created in the likeness of Adam. So understand that as well. You do not have a new and better Adam. It is not that Jesus was miraculously conceived as God's own son, but that he was merely spoken into existence and had a soul breathed into him, just like Adam, 
And then the Quran reasons that he ate like any other man, therefore he is not God. He was merely one of the many prophets, which you see in Surah 2, 136. His gospel, they say, is not the gospel that you and I believe whatsoever, but ultimately that Allah is the one true God and there is no other prophet. They likewise deny that Christ was ever crucified. I mean, they literally reject it. The Quran teaches it only appeared as if Jesus had died. They claim that either Judas or Simon of Cyrene actually swapped places with him. And these are the men who died rather than Jesus Christ. They say history, in fact, got it wrong. The Holy Spirit is not seen as God. Like I mentioned in the beginning, it is only the Gab- our angel Gabriel, and he delivered the Quran to Muhammad. So understand that. This is all part and parcel to the very fundamental doctrine of Islam known as the Tawhid. It immediately rejects the Christian claim that Jesus is truly God and the Holy Spirit is truly God. And all of this is born out of the idea of what I would say is Allah's transcendence, meaning that he is far and above creation itself. He's so far removed, in fact, that you cannot relate anything or anyone to him. You cannot truly approach him or understand him. If you do so, ultimately... The Quran teaches it as blasphemy. Now, why is this radically important? Why am I actually spending time on this idea of his transcendence? The reality is that everything is seen through this grid. At the very starting point, it is a denial of the only solution that God has actually given us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the starting point. That's the entry door, so to speak. But it encompasses much, much more than a rejection of the Trinity. The rejection of the Trinity, in other words, is a fruit born out of this idea of his transcendence. The one characteristic of Allah that remains supreme above them all is that he is far removed from anything that you or I can think of or relate to. And so we must answer the question, what does it mean when it says that Allah is transcendent? Well, in much the same way that the Christian would describe God as sovereign and in control of all things, so too would Islam. But the radical difference comes through an understanding of who God is in all of his totality. For the Christian, God is not simply just sovereign. He does not have just this one attribute through which every other thing is now filtered through. He is sovereign, loving, merciful, and so on and so forth. But he is a complete perfection of all of these things at one time. He's not made up of different parts as if he is one part holy, one part just, one part mercy, and so on and so forth. Ultimately, all of these attributes are uniquely his at the same exact time, and he has made all of this known to mankind. He has revealed himself in other words, but he is a profoundly close God. He is imminent. He's not just above it all. He is close to us. God is transcendent. He is above all things in creation. But this transcendent God has personally revealed himself to man in order to make himself known that man might personally know him. He is intimately involved in all the work of his creation, not simply because he controls all things, but that God created man that we might walk with him. In other words, there's an actual relationship with the God of this universe. In Islam, there is no such thing. The fundamental difference, in other words, between God, the one true God, the actual God, and Allah, is that God created mankind not simply for worship, but that they might have a relationship with their creator. Again, in Islam, this is not the case. Allah is purely above creation. There's this infinite gulf between humanity and Allah, and it is not because of your sin. It is because he is so unknowable and so unrelatable that you can't possibly bridge that chasm. Allah has made his will known to man in the Quran. He's partially revealed himself, but the best that you can hope to achieve is to know some things about this God rather than to actually know him. Get that. It regularly speaks of who he is or his character in in the sense that it, it always says Allah is most forgiving, most compassionate, most merciful, but always because of the basis of his power or his transcendence. 
To make that clear, the teaching of the Taweed, this fundamental doctrine of Islam, is far more concerned about the fact that you affirm Allah as the supreme sovereign one who is beyond all possible experience and knowledge than any other concept that you can have a relationship with him. Or that he's loving. Or that he's merciful and kind and gracious. You are merely a creature in his world. And everything about Islam is submission. In fact, the word Islam just means that, submission. Again, it speaks to the fact that Allah is closer, even closer than one's own jugular vein. But its nearness is not about him relating or approaching humanity in any sense. And taking on humility, he is omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent, only meaning that he knows all and sees all and has all power. And therefore, he is closer to you than your jugular vein. That's the idea of closeness of Allah. In other words, being closer than one's own jugular vein is not actually seen as anything personal. He is just powerful enough that space and time don't limit him in any way, shape, or form. In every way you think about it or conceive of it, it is that he is supremely above it all, he is transcendent, he is unapproachable. This becomes incredibly important simply because, again, everything else is filtered through this lens. The problem, the solution, the commands, the blessing, all of it is seen in light of this. Nothing is born out of him being the very embodiment of holiness and love and mercy and justice and so on and so forth. Everything is about Allah being transcendent. Everything is about him ruling over creation, and creation has this mere obligation to submit. He is the supreme despot. To put it very clearly, to affirm there is no God but Allah is ultimately to affirm that the God of the Bible and the God of Islam are not one and the same, even remotely so. Even remotely so. Any Muslim who knows the Quran knows this. But this also gets into some crazy weeds when you start to talk about things like translation committees and they're going to now translating God as Allah. Is that appropriate? I would argue absolutely not. Why? Because they are fundamentally different gods. Every bit of what I just talked about is the fundamental doctrine that you must hold to if you're a Muslim. You must reject the Trinity. You must affirm Allah as the supreme one, the sovereign one, the one who does not really ultimately care about his creation. But you also must affirm several other things. Now we can start to look at what they see as the problem. But remember, all of this filters through Allah being transcendent. So Islam does teach that sin is an actual issue, but it's not something that separates mankind from Allah. What separates one from Allah in Islam is simply a failure to recognize who he is and submit to him. Again, do you see how this is now just the grid through which everything falls? In other words, your fundamental problem is not that you are sinners in need of redemption, it's that or not that you even face the wrath of a holy God, the fundamental problem for humanity, for every one of you in this room, as the Muslim would see it, is that you do not know Allah as the one true God, you do not affirm Muhammad as his messenger, and therefore you do not submit to him. But nonetheless, they still hold to a doctrine of sin, which is fascinating in my mind. Now, before I can even get to this, though, it's so radically different, I actually have to tell you what it's not because you're automatically thinking of it within a Christian framework. There's no concept of original sin. I mean, so that's, again, the baseline here. They actually just reject it. Islam teaches that when Adam and Eve sinned, it did not bring mankind into sin. Right? He says in Surah 6, 164, and every soul earns not blame except against itself. Notice that, against itself, not against the Creator. And no bearer of burdens will bear the burden of another. In other words, there is no inherited guilt. Why? Because they consider it unjust. To the Muslim, every bit of this shows personal responsibility. And you'll see that this is the key understanding of their own problem, right? They say that mankind, as a result, is born in a morally neutral state. Sin has not corrupted their nature. It has not corrupted them. All they have to do is choose to submit, and they have the power to do so. That's how they fundamentally define sin, in other words. It's not a state of being, but it is an action, and it's namely a failure to submit to Allah. 
That's their problem. But they would also say it's not something that grieves Allah in any way, shape, or form. To say that sin would grieve him would be to relate him to humanity. And remember, he is supremely transcendent. It would make you guilty of actually violating the Taweed. Instead, it just simply teaches that Allah created mankind. He knows that we all sin, and he's relatively indifferent to it. He knows we face temptation. And yet, so long as we affirm that he is the one true God and Muhammad as his messenger, you can begin the ascent to paradise. Now, I say begin because that is merely the entry door into Islam. In the end, it's all up to you. But even then, you actually don't have a hope in any sense because it's all up to Allah. You can work your tail end off all your life, and at the very end of it, he can just say, no, he is supremely transcendent. So they define their categories of sin in two different ones. You have minor sins and major sins. Minor sins are commonly defined as sins that, are, that fall into two other categories. So think of even Matt's message on Roman Catholicism. You can start to see that there's some similarities there too, aren't there? The Quran doesn't attach a warning of hell to certain sins, and that would be a minor sin. It doesn't pronounce judgment for certain sins, and that also would be a minor sin. However, the opposite of that is the case for a major sin. If it does attach a curse to it or the warning of hell, it's a major sin. Examples of minor sins would be something like breaking a promise or you're being immodest, you're suspicious or spying of other people. Uh, you might be given a name-calling, bullying, gossip, swearing, and so on and so forth. However, it just simply says all of these can be forgiven by, by Allah. How? Not on the basis of Him forgiving you, not on, even on the basis of His transcendence, which is an odd contradiction, but if you stop the sin and you don't return to it. It's up to you. Let's say you stop it, though. There's no real peace. Let's say you fall back into it. There's certainly no peace. You know why? Minor sins can now become major sins. Minor sins can become a major sin if you regularly participate in it. Not because the deed is a major sin, but simply because you've now made a habit of it. In the Hadith, Muhammad says, indeed, if a believer sins, the Hadith, remember, is their official reported sayings of Muhammad by his followers. Indeed, if a believer sins, a black spot covers his heart. Notice the difference already. Not fundamentally a blackness of his own heart. Not an unredeemed, unregenerate man who needs redemption. He just has a little bit of a black spot. If he repents and stops from his sin and seeks forgiveness for it, his heart becomes clean again. How do you get a new heart? It's up to you. If he persists, instead of repenting, it increases until it covers his heart. So understand that. If you habitually practice it, it now becomes a major sin. But there is no definition of when it becomes a habit. So how do you know? You don't. Notice what it also said, though. If he repents, if he stops from a sin, if he seeks forgiveness from it, then his heart becomes clean. Again, it's all up to you, but maybe not. How do you know if you've done enough? You don't. The only thing you can do is seek to stop and not do it again and hope that Allah will forgive you of it. But at the end of your life, he can still tilt the scales in his own direction because he is supremely transcendent. You have no idea or no way of knowing he will actually do so. But you know that the major sins are the really bad ones, and so you definitely want to keep from doing that. Major sins, again, are defined as those who have a curse attached to them or a promise that hell awaits them. So notice, again, in those two different categories, minor sins, apparently, no hell. Minor sins, no justice, no judgment. Minor sins, no wrath. But they can turn into major sins. Examples of major sins, they say, are murdery, adultery, fornication, taking interest, stealing from an orphan's estate, lying, witchcraft, drinking alcohol, abandoning the battlefield during war, slandering a chaste woman, or disrespecting one's parents. Again, it just says that all these sins can be forgiven if you repent. Only if. So there's no real discernible difference between the minor and the major sins other than the fact that they have been promised a judgment. However, 
The ultimate hope is still that if you can tip the scales in your favor by doing enough good, you will outweigh any bad these major sins have brought on you. Again, you have no guarantee. It is utterly hopeless. You're going to see that towards the end. But there is one unforgivable sin, and every last one of you is guilty of it today. Any of the songs you sang today would make you guilty of this unforgivable sin in Islam, and that's called shirk. Shirk is simply the negation of the Taweed. It is blasphemy. It is associating anything and anyone with God. It is not merely if you claim multiple gods, as a polytheist would, Rather, if you compare Allah to something or to someone and die of repenting of or without repenting of it, you can't be forgiven. Now, to give you an idea of how easy this is, we would all say in this room that we are created in the very image of God, right? At least I hope you would. In Islam, that's shirk. Allah is supremely transcendent. You cannot relate anything or anyone to him. Now, couple with that, that you worship Jesus Christ that you say the Holy Spirit is God himself. Right? Everything runs much, much deeper for any one of you. And if you die in that state, meaning you're a faithful Christian to the very end, you, out of all people in the world, cannot be forgiven. Allah can arbitrarily pardon anyone he wants, except for you. Get that. Again, implicit to the religion is a rejection of the Christian faith. I want you to see this. There's this quote that comes right from the same section of the Quran that explicitly denies the Trinity. It explicitly denies Jesus Christ. And so everything is attacking Christians directly. It speaks directly to the Christian worldview. It was intended to. It says, indeed, those who disbelieve and avert people from the way of Allah have certainly gone far astray. Indeed, those who disbelieve and commit wrong or injustice never will Allah forgive them. This is shirk. Right? Never will he forgive them, nor will he guide them to a path, except the path of hell. There they will abide forever. And that for Allah is always easy. Again, if you die as a Christian, as you die as one committing shirk, there is no forgiveness. So according to Islam, then, what's the solution? Right? You see sin arbitrarily defined, except for the unforgivable sin. So what's the solution? Well, they're the same as the commands in Islam. They're one and the same, meaning that every bit of it is ultimately up to you. But there is a catch. There is a catch, and that catch is, again, that Allah can simply decide, even after you've done it all, that you're still going to hell. Get how bleak that is. To enter into Islam, you have to begin with what's called the Shahada, which is to say, again, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. But again, by no means is that the complete solution, because everything is now going to be a series of different works that you must do in order to enter paradise. But again, your fate is not up to you, even though it's up to you. Your fate is up to Allah, who can choose whether or not he's going to forgive you. And there's no criteria by which it's ever stated that he will do so. So now we start to see the solution and the commands. Again, the Shahada is the essential doctrine you must embrace to convert to being a Muslim. Without it, you have no hope that Allah will forgive you. Right? If you die in a state of not affirming the Shahada, no forgiveness. It starts with this. It entails a rejection of any other thing especially a rejection of the Christian faith. I mean, immediately, that's day one. But it also affirms that Muhammad is his messenger, right? So there is the Taweed, which we already talked about. There is no God but Allah. And this goes all the way back to the idea of transcendence we talked about to begin with. The emphasis, again, is on the oneness of Allah, the uniqueness of him from everything and everyone else. To embrace this is not only seeing him as the transcendent one, but the one whose will you must submit to. That's all wrapped up in this. And this is the base commitment of any who are going to be Muslim. But the base commitment, again, is a rejection of Jesus Christ. He is not the Son of God. He did not die on a cross. And then by implication, he did not raise again. That is what you must affirm to be Muslim. It is the most important doctrine. 
Think of that for a second. The most important doctrine of Islam is that you must deny the Bible's solution. You don't have Islam without it. You have no Muslim without it. But it's not the only thing you must affirm. The second affirmation is that Muhammad is his messenger. And all that means is very, very clear. He is the greatest and the last prophet, and to reject him is to reject Islam as well. So even though Islam does never, never would teach that you must worship Muhammad, he is put on par with Allah very, very quickly. Is he not? If you reject him, you reject Allah. Without him, you do not have Islam. Without him, you do not have forgiveness. He is integral because everything must be filtered by what he has said or reported to have said. Now, the, this confession also must be made in Arabic, even if you don't know Arabic. And it must be done with true intent. Oh, it didn't go. Well, I did to begin with, I thought. All right. Sorry about that. So, he is integral to the Muslim faith. You must make this confession in Arabic in the presence of many other people. It must be done with true intent and faith. In other words, even if you don't know Arabic, you still have to say it in Arabic, but you must also really mean it and believe it. And this is all it really takes to become a Muslim. In other words, this is their base level commitment or idea of salvation. There's no concept of grace or forgiveness, redemption or salvation, at least how a Christian would define it. It is simply pure obedience and submission to Allah from beginning to end and affirming that Muhammad is his one supreme prophet. Now, from the beginning of uttering this message to the very end of your life, it is up to you to obey. That is the basic message of Islam. But I need you to keep in mind, again, that Allah is so transcendent above every bit of it that even if you obey all of these things perfectly, you still can be denied. And so what is it that you must obey? As you can see behind me, finally now, you have the five pillars of Islam. So what are these five pillars of Islam? Again, the beginning one is the shahada. And I want you to understand just how integral this is to the life of the Muslim. It is literally the first thing said to a newborn. It is the last thing said to a person on their deathbed. It is said at minimum five times a day throughout the entirety of that person's life. So from very beginning to middle to end, every bit of it is all pure submission. The statement, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger, is the creedal statement they live by every waking breath. And if you don't affirm this, remember, you're guilty of shirk, the unforgivable sin. So if you don't practice this first one, again, no hope of paradise. The second pillar of Islam is prayer. And again, you must do this five times a day daily. You must do it. There is no option. For any of these pillars, there's no option, guys. Before you pray, you must wash yourself to be considered pure. There are five daily prayers you do at certain times. You have them at dawn and noon and evening and afternoon and night. Now, when you pray, you must pray in the direction of Mecca and you must pray in certain positions. And every time you change your position, you then must say, Allah is great. The content of the prayers involves not only the shahada, again, that is, there is no other God but Allah and Muhammad as his messenger, but many other verses of the Quran. Now, you can pray outside of this if your heart desires to, but these are the mandatory times and ways in which you must pray if you're a Muslim. Every single day. If you don't, you're likely to miss out on paradise. These prayers, in other words, actually, they say will purify you. They will keep you from committing certain sins. Certain prayers can give you an atoning effect, meaning they will actually wash away your sin. Now, the third pillar is almsgiving or charity. And roughly 2.5% of your wealth on an annual basis is to be given back to the Islamic community. And again, there are two main reasons why they do this. The first is that by giving alms, the Muslim, again, will purify themselves but they will also purify their belongings. In other words, they say that by simply giving money, they and their money and their possessions are made holy. The second reason is that by giving to the needy in private, they say some of your sins will actually be atoned for. So do you see that? Allah is supremely transcendent, but you can buy him off apparently. And the fourth pillar of Islam is that 
fasting during the month of Ramadan. In this, the Muslim is expected to forego food and drink and intercourse and things like smoking from sunup until sundown. And the whole purpose of this is born out of having a great awareness of the fact of Allah being the transcendent one. But they also say this is a way that you can be protected from sin and lustful desires. In other words, fasting then is a way that you can become more and more righteous. But you can invalidate it in any number of different ways. If you commit certain sins, which they don't say which ones, if you're a woman during your menstrual cycle, or even if you botch the time in which you are to be fasting, every one of those will invalidate your fast. If you break your fast in any which way, you must then take up an additional 60 days of fasting after Ramadan or feed 60 poor people for each day you broke your fast. But your intention also matters in all of that. If you do not have full sincerity of heart and mind while you fast, you may also invalidate it. So how do you know? They don't tell you. The fifth and final pillar of Islam then is called Hajj. And that is a pilgrimage every Muslim must make to Mecca at least once in their lifetime. There are certain exceptions, like if you're an invalid or you are deathly ill, but this is what's expected of everybody. But like every one of these pillars, you must do so at a particular time of year, in a particular type of clothing, in a particularly ritualistic way, and with certain expressions and certain oblations and everything else. The goal of all of this is to gain enlightenment as Muhammad did. But the intended result is that it should lead to a constant state of striving. Striving. No rest. Striving. For what? Submission to Allah. These are the base requirements. These are the things that you are required to do if you have any hope of entering paradise at all. Any hope. If you don't do them, you have no guarantee. But even in that, you still have no guarantee. The extra practices in Islam that you can do are all bound up in the same reality of submission to Allah. If you submit yourself to more good works, you have a better chance of going to paradise. If you do not, you have a better chance of going to hell. But as we will see towards the end of it, Allah can just flip that either way. How all of this is determined is that at the very end of your life, the solution, every bit of it boils down to what's called the scales. Have you done enough good to outweigh the bad? But again, Allah is transcendent. You might have your scales weighed, and he can change it in an instant. For now, though, let's look at the scales. See, I make fun of Matt for the buckets, but then I can't even get the thing going to the next slide. <laughs> All right, so this in Islam is the closest concept you have to salvation. Everything that can be summed up in Surah 2147 and 99, 6 through 8. The context of these passages that they have are all speaking of final judgment, so I want you to understand that. It's talking about man standing before Allah and having to give an account for his deeds. Surah 2147 says, And we set up a just balance, or scales, for the day of resurrection. Thus, no soul will be treated unjustly, even if it be the weight of a mustard seed, we shall bring it forth to be weighed, and our reckoning will suffice. Again in 99, 6-8, he says, That day mankind will come forth in scattered groups to be shown their deeds, and he who has done an atom's weight of good will see it. Right, The smallest amount of good you could ever have done, he says, will be placed on that scale. On the flip side... He who has done an Adam's weight of evil will see it. So even the teeniest little bit of evil you've ever done is getting put on that scale. The basic gist of it is that everything at the end of your life will be now be weighed and we'll see where you fall. If your scales are tipped in favor of good, you may enter paradise. And I say may. If your scales are tipped in favor of bad, you may plunge into hell. Again, there's this promise over and over again throughout the Quran that, Maha, or that Allah is merciful 
Again, in nearly every Sarah, that is every single passage that they have, or book rather, it's that Allah is most merciful and oft forgiving. But when it comes down to it, the best you have is a maybe. It depends in one sense on how you land on these scales, right? Again, if you've done enough good, perhaps. But more terrifying than all of that is the reality that Allah can overrule the scales. And that's ultimately what I want to just show you briefly now. Remember, the judgment is not born out of impartial justice. It's not born out of his sense of holiness. It is all born out of the fact that he is above it all and has the power to choose what he desires. It's all based on pure, unbridled transcendence, unchecked power. There's no concept, in other words, of his own character and nature that prevents him in acting in a capricious way. There is a teaching from one of the Hadith that illustrates this concept incredibly clearly. The Hadith tells us that in the womb, so before you were born, Allah sends his angels, and what does he do but have them write four different things, his provision, his age, and whether or not he will be of the wretched or the blessed. It is at this point he breathes the soul into a person. And it's said that every bit of this from this point on is just pure divine decree. Remember, Allah determines how long he will live, <clears throat> what he will have in life, and whether he is doomed to hell or will enter paradise. And yet every bit of it after that is he must work and work and work and work. None of it will change that decree. Here's where things get interesting. Right? The scales are said to be those that need to be tipped in your favor. However, he says a man may do the works of one destined to hell until he is a cubit or two from hell. Right? So very, very close. Yet then that writing that Allah decreed precedes the judgment, and all of a sudden he now does the works of the people in paradise and enters in. On the opposite end of that, a man may do the works of one destined for paradise until he's within a cubit or two of paradise. But then the decree sets in, and it comes into play, and he will go to hell. In other words, it's pure predeterminism. Even though it teaches you must work to enter paradise, you have no ultimate hope because at the end of it all, Allah can take it and change it and send you where he wants you. There's another hadith that shows us even more clearly. There's a man who is said to be going from one village to the next. In the beginning, he has killed 99 people, right? He has been a murderer all his life. And he goes to a monk and he asks the monk, how can I find repentance? And the monk says, you can't. Well, he just kills the monk. At that point, one, one more, why not? He goes then to another person, a scholar this time, and he asks the same question, and the scholar is a little bit more wise than the monk. And he tells him, you must go to this village where wise people will instruct you on what you must do to seek repentance. But on the way to this village, what happens? He dies. He never repents. In other words, he spent his whole life murdering people, which is a major sin, and he never finds knowledge or guidance from Allah and how he must submit to him. So what happens next is that angels and demons then come to battle over him and take him either to paradise or to hell. Well, they can't settle the dispute, so Allah decrees, decrees again, get that, that all they must do at this point is simply measure the distance between his starting point and that village he was on his way to. If he is closer to his starting point, he goes to hell. If he is closer to the end point, to that village where he would have learned repentance, he can go to paradise. If he's one cubit closer, that's all it takes, just about a foot or two. And the angels then go and measure, and here's where the decree kicks in. Allah then takes the distance between his starting point and where he died, and he shortens the gap. Or rather, he does that between the village he's supposed to go to. He shortens that gap. So he's one cubit closer to the village where the wise men were supposed to be to give him repentance, and he goes to paradise. That's how transcendent Allah is said to be. At any time, he can do what he desires. He can lie and deceive. He can change his mind. He is ultimately the sovereign one. So what do these two hadith show us? None of it flows from his character. None of it flows for his being to provide a basis for salvation. Salvation is purely and arbitrarily shown 
by his supreme power to do whatever the heck he wants. To put it more clearly, he's not forgiving or merciful or loving because this is who he is. These things never will come from his character. They will never, in other words, flow from the fact that he is consistent with who he is. He is only forgiving and merciful and loving when he chooses to be. It is on the basis of his pure decision. There's no standard for which you know when or why or how he will do so. He just simply can and does. The writing that proceeds otherwise, that divine decree that he made while the man was still in the womb of his mother, will be the ultimate determination between paradise and hell, irrespective of anything else. So what does that teach you? But there is no certainty in Islam. You can work your butt end off every bit of your life, and that decree sets in at the very end of it and changes everything. So you have people, billions, or rather close to a billion, so millions and millions of people who are doing just that each and every day, beloved. This is the religion. This is Allah. There's no basis of injustice. There's no concept of love and mercy. It is pure determinism. So what happens then if you do happen to make it? What are the blessings then? Well, there's really no teaching in the immediate sense in this life. You get general vague concepts of earthly peace and prosperity, a good reputation. Again, Allah is seen as merciful and forgiving because he gives you these things, but none of it flows from his character, all his power. There's no helper in the spirit. There's no concept of justification. There is no sense of peace with God. You never know. There's no adoption. He will never guarantee if you're saved. Everything is divine decree. He will either bring you or he won't. At the end of your life, after you've done everything and the scales are tipped in the favor of good, let's say, he just says, no. That is Allah. But the ultimate goal of all of this, even if you make it, is not that you would have a personal relationship with this God. Remember, to associate anything or anyone with Allah, to relate to Him in any way, is shirk, the unforgivable sin of Islam. He cannot be a relatable, personal God. So let's say you make it. What does it look like? There is a bountiful garden. There's rivers flowing with honey and wine where you can eat and drink your fill. There's the classic several young maidens or virgins. You're decked out in the finest clothing and bracelets. You enjoy eternal youth and more. Allah will grant you things, they say, beyond your wildest imaginations. And all of that, in one sense, sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And yet the best part of Islam, the best part, is that you will encounter Allah. Encounter. Get that word. According to the tradition, he says the people of paradise will gather with him but once a week on Fridays. Once a week, and you will have the blessing of gazing upon his noble countenance. That is the best part. You will not enjoy eternal fellowship with Allah because the point of paradise is not eternal fellowship with Allah. You will simply count yourself blessed by being able to come vaguely close to him and gaze upon his face once a week. That is the hope of the Muslim for all eternity. Your praise will not be on the basis of his love, his mercy, his grace, nor anything else about his character, but his transcendence. And you will marvel at his transcendence. You will marvel at how utterly unapproachable he is, because you will submit. So now, when we consider everything that's been said in light of this, we come right back to where we started, don't we? We come right back to the full transcendence of Allah, the fact that he can just arbitrarily make this decision. 
Consider this in light of what we've learned, where Matt and I have shown you the problem, the solution, the commands, and the blessing. Consider all that you've heard so far. Consider the fact that God has revealed himself as the personal triune God, that through every bit of creation, fall, and redemption, and restoration, every bit of the Christian faith teaches that the one true God is a deeply personal God. It teaches that he is transcendent, but that he is imminent, or rather that he is close to mankind. And that closeness is not simply seen because he is everywhere and all-powerful and all-knowing, but the fact that he is near to his creation, that he delights in his creation. He has created us that we might glorify him and enjoy him. He condescends in love through the person of Jesus Christ. That is the nearness of this God, of the Bible. Again, Islam denies all of that at the starting point. That is the fundamental belief you must hold. You must reject the personal God who has provided a solution to sin through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The God who dwells with us. The God who cares for us and loves us and seals us for the day of redemption. The God who gives his Holy Spirit that lives within each and every believer. So naturally, when you reject the fact that God is who he is, everything else goes astray from the get-go. Remember, Islam teaches man is created in a morally neutral position. He can choose to do good and evil. His nature is not fundamentally corrupt. His nature is able to do what is good. And what is good is submission to Allah. Therefore, his greatest need is not redemption, but submission. Christianity teaches that man is fallen and unable to do what is good, and therefore his greatest need is redemption. Radically different. Islam teaches that the solution to your greatest need of submission is to submit. You need to work all the harder, but you have no assurance that you will make it. Allah can deny you because Allah, even though he is most forgiving, he is most transcendent. Christianity teaches that the solution can only be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ who truly is the Son of God. That he took on the weakness of human flesh to bear the punishment that you and I deserved. That he drank the cup in full and rose on the third day to secure our redemption. The God of the Bible surely is all-powerful, but the display of this is met through the shame of the cross in an act of love. Islam teaches that the commands are one and the same as the solution But again, Allah can tip the scales. Christianity teaches the commands are that you repent and believe on Christ as your all-sufficient Redeemer. You can't do it. You cannot work off your debt. But you can have the very righteousness of Christ credited to you, that covers you, that makes you blameless and with great joy before the Father at the end of all days, that secures your salvation from beginning to end. There are no scales. Right? That's where we get into the blessings. In Islam, it's in the here and now, you may have a better life. In the next life, you may have a slightly better life. But the best of it, gazing upon the all-transcendent Allah, but once a week. Christianity teaches that you have presently been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every last one. You are justified. You are given eternal life. You have forgiveness. You have peace with God. You are adopted into his family and given the family name. You are eternally secure. You are loved by the Father. When you come to see him in heaven, you will forever be in his presence, not just once a week. You will not be held in an arm's length of distance where you're vaguely treated as if you are somehow able to bask in his awesome presence. No, the God of all eternity will shine upon you with his very love and the embodiment of who he is forever. And he will dwell with his people and they will dwell with him. Islam, at the end of the day, beloved, is just a prison cell. It is a deep dark and dank prison cell. And it first and foremost immediately rejects the only thing that will actually solve our legitimate problem. 
They say Christ is not God. Christ did not die on the cross for our sins. Therefore, he did not rise from the dead to secure our redemption and give us eternal life with him. And so you are in the dark, dank little prison cell every day of your life. You work, and you work, and you work. And yet the decree kicks in at some point, one way or the other. And that is all you can hope in as a Muslim. He will hold you at an arm's length for all eternity at best. He can't relate to you. That would be shirk. The unforgivable sin, a blasphemy. It is hopeless and depressing. And so what do you do with all of that? Now as you look at your Muslim neighbor or person that you've simply met, while you may not know a ton of them, guys, they are around, you should be overwhelmed with a sense of compassion and pity because every bit of their life is as depressing as it gets because the best they have to hope for is that Allah will arbitrarily take them into paradise and just basically let them gaze upon him. You have a personal relationship with your creator who condescended in the form of man to take on flesh and die in your place and give you his righteousness so that one day you may be seen as pure and blameless and without any stain of sin, undefiled by the corruption of this life for all eternity as you dwell with him. You of all people have the greatest hope in all the world. You and I, even though we are still sinners, and that we continually screw up, we have a God who forgives us. We have a God who says, I will not lose one. We have a God who is with us at every waking moment of the day. He is our personal God in that sense. And he is especially close within the congregation of his people called the church. Yeah. You can't even fathom how difficult this is for me to come up here today, and I just got done preaching the blessings at the vine. Oh, how wonderfully different is that sermon. How from start to finish, God has been so kind to us. For the Muslim, you have none of that. You have working and working and working as the little gerbil on the wheel, and one day that wheel just gets slapped off. And you either somehow land in safety and security or you will land in a pit of spikes. So what do you do? You show them the God who sees. You show them that you have a hope that surpasses everything in this life. You show them by your own upright character and your unwavering hope and commitment to the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that you have something that is well beyond what this life has to offer and far better than anything Islam has to offer because you will have a personal relationship with your creator for all eternity. But show them that in the here and now, that has some profound implications. Show them that you can rest. Show them that you are safe and secure. Show them that you have a comforter and a keeper, one who loves you, who promises to wipe every single tear away from your eye on that last day the one who will dwell among his people forever, not just once a week. Show them, beloved, Jesus Christ, who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you not works, not an arbitrary decision. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Show them the burden bearer, beloved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are such an incredibly gracious and loving Father. You've not merely seen us in our desperate condition and forgiven us. You've not merely provided the solution in full through Jesus Christ, but you have given us every spiritual blessing. We know that we are safe and secure, that we are not somehow trying to maintain our own salvation 
We cannot do so. The only thing that we have to trust in, and this is the most amazing part about it, is the work that Jesus did. We are fully free. And so let us be a people who are emboldened by that reality in which we would pursue holiness, that we would pursue evangelizing, we would pursue relationships with those who we know are not in Christ for the sake of giving them this beloved gospel that we hold dear. I pray that we would indeed be a beacon upon a hill in this city. We would never grow tired of sharing the good news. We would always and evermore be encouraged to be able to share it, but to treasure it in our own hearts. We thank you that you are consistent with who you are. You are not a bully of a God. You have promised fierce wrath for those who do not know you, but you have also promised salvation through Christ. And not one iota of that will ever change, for you are not a God who lies. You are not a God who changes his mind like men. You are the eternal, but you are ultimately the near God. And we thank you for this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.